podcast is brought to you by Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Uh, 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 here we go. Everybody be cool, this is a robbery. Need you cool. Are you cool? Bark all day, little doggy, or are you gonna bite? Oh, I'm sorry, did I break your concentration? Ready to fly, bitch. I'm a killer. I'm a murdering bastard, you know that? And there are consequences to breaking the heart of a murdering bastard. You really only need to hang mean bastards. But mean bastards, you need to hang. You hear me talking, hillbilly boy? I'ma get medieval on your ass. You don't shut to this? Nah, I don't think so. More like chewed out. I've been chewed out before. Hey, is everybody okay? The fucking hippies aren't. That, that's for goddamn sure. Kill white folks and they pay you for it. It's not the light. Starting to see pictures, ain't you? Gentlemen, you have my curiosity. Now you have my attention. Welcome back, all you inglorious bastards, to your monthly worship service where we help rejuvenate your soul through the good works of our Lord and Savior, Quentin Tarantino. I am the Reverend Scott Kay, and this is the Church of Tarantino podcast. It's July, and what better way to kick off America's birthday celebration than with a jam-packed month devoted entirely to Tarantino's fourth-directed film in his filmography, the Kung Fu Samurai Spaghetti Western mashup, Kill Bill. What we have in store for you this month is a new episode every Friday for the entire month of July. That's right, we have three worship service episodes and two Bible studies to help pass the time during these dog days of summer. But before we make our kill list and commission a mysterious man from Okinawa to make us a sword so we can dive into Kill Bill Volume 1, it is my pleasure to welcome back to the podcast the host of the Way Past Cool Podcast and friend of the Church of Tarantino, Mr. Steve Smith. Welcome back, Mr. Smith, and may Tarantino be with you always. Hello, Scott. Thank you for having me back. I'm very excited. And once again, we have done a Tarantino thing. You and I recorded the Bible studies prior to recording any of this episode. I had another person lined up to do Kill Bill. And at the last second, we had to do a character change. We had, we had to bring new talent due to scheduling conflicts. He's going to join me later on in this year to uh, make up for this missed opportunity. And so I called the two people I could think of who said to me, man, Kill Bill is my favorite movie. I wish I had been on it. The first was you, because we'd already done the Bible studies, and it's weird because when you hear the Bible studies coming up, I'm going to talk about how these are the last time he's on. So technically it is right, but yet technically this is your seventh appearance. It's really your fifth in chronological order that these people are going to listen to it. But in recording, this is now your seventh. So you did sneak back in. Yeah, non-linear podcasting. And then I also was able to reach out to Mr. Rabalkin, who did the Jackie Brown episode with me in June, because he also said that that was his favorite movie, and he liked Volume 2 the best. So I was like, boom, 
All I have to do is ask these two gentlemen and pray like hell. They say yes, because I'm recording this the closest I've ever recorded an episode. This is less than two weeks before I put this out. So, fuck it. We're going to do it. This is Kill Bill. We're jumping in. Yeah. This is the oh. 2000s. This is where Tarantino takes flight. He leaves the 90s behind and all the crime he did, and I think he felt it's time for me to show what I can do, and he decides to go off and do almost every genre that he loves, and he decides that he's going to do it his way and the best, and he launches it with this glorious movie. Now, before I jump in and ask you your questions, do you consider this film one or two movies? Do you consider Kill Bill, his fourth film like he does, or do you see it as two films? You have Kill Bill Volume 1 and you have Kill Bill Volume 2. I do see them as two films, actually. Thank you for being on the podcast. We will talk to you later. Yeah, well, I know. I mean, I get what I get what Tarantino was saying, but I can only come at it as I saw them. You know, that we saw them as two films. Fair, we did. We did see them as two. You know, um, I've never seen, I've, I've never been fortunate enough to see the whole bloody affair, which does change things slightly from what I've read. It does. Yeah, I mean, I get, I, I get that they're, you know, but they were released, you know, separately. and So they, they were, but they aren't parts. Films. They are volumes. They're not part one and part two. They are volumes. Yeah, yeah. So I know I, I'm conflicted because I get it. I get what he's saying. I paid to see two movies. You did. <laughs> so for those who are not familiar with why it is broken up into two, this was originally one film over four hours long. This is his longest film in his entire catalog. No other films are as long. The great Harvey Weinstein, and I say that with all sarcasm, and the man's a piece of shit, but Mr. Weinstein at the time, head of Miramax at the time, he wanted Tarantino to trim this down quite a bit. And in order for Tarantino to keep this as he saw it, he decided to break it up into the two volumes. So, yes, we did get two different releases. This movie came out in the fall of 2003. Volume 2 came out in April of 2004. So next year, the Volume 1 will be reaching its 20th anniversary. It's getting close. Yeah. Oh, Just yeah. so that my listeners understand that that is why this has been broken into two films. I see it as one, but I, honestly, I'm just glad we got it how we got it. And yes, like you, I would absolutely love to see The Whole Bloody Fair. And The Whole Bloody Fair was a package release that was actually supposed to come out near the end of the 2000s. And then even was talked about again in the early 2010s. Tarantino was going to release this. You know, what he finally did on Netflix, uh, releasing the giant cut of The Hateful Eight, except breaking it up into almost four episodes. He was going to release this as one whole thing with a bunch of stuff cut out, stuff at the end of this and stuff at the beginning of Volume 2. That's what was supposed to happen. There is a whole bloody affair cut that Tarantino himself owns. It is an actual film, and he shows it every once in a while at the New Beverly in California. I will add, though, that although I see them as two films, I always watch them together. I did it for this one. For this one, I watched them separately at different days so I could take the notes and be be involved in one film so I could do it and then not go to the next one. But yes, normally when I do watch them. Whenever I watch them, I watch them both. So yeah, Yeah, it's one of those things. Before we jump in, let's get you some new questions. You have already had, this will be your third set of questions. Right. So, my first question to you, Mr. Smith. In this film, who do you think has the best chance of landing a blow against the great Pai Mei? Well, I've got two possibilities, really. I know I'm cheating already. On one hand, I'm going to say the bride. Okay. Because he, he um, you know, he trained her with the 
the uh, five-point palm explosion heart technique. He did, but it is his technique, just so I try to make sure you yeah, remember. Yeah, it's his technique. He's shown her, but he hasn't. I don't, I don't believe he showed anyone else. No, I, because even Bill says in volume two, he says he shows no one that technique. Exactly. So she's got a better chance than anyone else. But then there's another side of me that thinks it'd be cool if um, Johnny Murrow... The uh, leader of the crazy eight. <laughs> the yeah. same guy. The yeah, exact yeah, the exactly. same exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so Gordon Lou or whatever his name Well played, if, sir. Yeah. Well played. I so like you could that. Get, that would be a that would be a something that's probably well that it's happened before where you've you've had one act of fight and two different people. That that would just be a cool It would be. I like that. I like that. So that's so Johnny Moe is selfishly what I would like to see. But I think the bride would stand the best chance against my man. All right. I like that. Mr. Smith, of all the characters in this film, who would you kill, marry, smash, have sex with, for those of you who don't know what smash means, and eat to stay alive, not in any sexual connotations? And this may be the lead up to something I might also be doing later on at a different date, but we'll talk about that another time. So who are you killing, marrying, smashing, and eating in this film. So kill, um, it's got to be Buck from the hospital. All right, why? Because he's a fucking piece of shit. That's why. You said Buck. I thought you said Bud. I apologize. Buck. Oh, gotcha. Okay, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Buck. Because he's a fucking piece of shit. <laughs> You're not going to get any, no, any pushback um, from no. me on this. No, so he's kill that motherfucker. He's the one. Now, marry Sophie Fatale. Sophie Fatale. All oh, right. She, okay. Uh, right, but, like, Okay. I'm no, you're not soul. wrong. It's the fatal, fatal is good. Yeah, I'm going to burn my soul a little bit here, okay? A, she's fucking, she's fucking hot. She is. 100% agree. She's got very nice feet as well. <laughs> she does because they do show her uh, her open-toed shoes as she drives a vehicle. Very nice feet. Okay, now, this is where it gets tricky. Uh, are we moving on to Smash? All right, so we're we, going to so, smash. Who are we smashing? Smash. We're Come smashing. On. Go, go, go Yubahari. Oh, 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 you think you're going to penetrate her or is she going to penetrate you, my friend? Oh, what do you think is going to happen? Oh, if anything, <laughs> if it's going to be that weapon of hers, I'm in trouble. <laughs> um, but yeah, because she's right. cute. She's cute and she's got them knee high socks. So. Hey, you, you don't have to, you do not have to sell it to me. I'm with you. I, sh- there's a lot of attractive females in the length of this film that we'll leave it there. The problem, right, so now we've got the problem of who would I eat to stay alive. Who would you eat to stay alive? I'm going to have to cop out a little bit here because Uh-oh. I think... oh don't cop out. I think, like, because I said Buck is who I'd kill. Mm-hmm. But he, he's quite a big fella. That's the... So I, I think I'll yeah, do you, that you can't see, guy. Uh, we are gonna, we're not going to allow you to circle back. You're going to have to pick. Oh, oh, man. He did bring a bigger fellow in with him. That guy looks like he eats a lot of barbecue, so... Jasper looks like he eats a lot of barbecue. So let's go Jasper. I'm going to say there's probably no one who would have thought that would be your answers. And I like that. I like I like that as your answers. And yeah. that may so, or may not be the subject of a, another monthly podcast I might do in the fall. I, uh, it may. May or may not. I may have just tossed this out to just test the waters with it. And I already like it as it is. That was a journey into my mind that no one has ever asked to go into. But there you go. And that's why it was fun. Now, Mr. Smith, who do you think is the deadliest character in the entirety of the Tarantino-verse? So that will include all 12 films. To me, that's the Tarantino-verse. I'm not saying just his filmography that he's directed. I'm talking about the 12 that we are on this journey going through. This seems like a cop-out, but I 
The bride is just the deadliest of the deadly. Okay. That wouldn't be my answer, but I, I like that as your answer. Well, if you're going to look at, you know, you got to look at kill count. Surely she's True. got the highest She's True. got the highest kill count of anyone. She doesn't, though. Am I, I, she's okay. second. The boys ooh, from ooh. the Inglorious Bastards, Mr. Donnie Donowitz and Omar, ah, they have the highest. They, no, hey. that's, hey, that's two but they do over 200. She's in around 70. If I, You know, I published this. I already put this out on social. Yeah, but, no, the but you know, Come well, on. You're, you're, you're not taking into account all the people the bride has killed. Listen, I'm just going with what I've got she in front was, of me. Hey, How many people she, have they killed in the war themselves prior to this? I'm just saying. Uh, okay, they're professionals. Okay. okay, yeah, but that's two people. Um, but I'm... Navi, you said the deadliest. I didn't say who killed the most. I just said who's the deadliest. Who's She's the person the you don't want to cross? Hey, hey, listen, them two fucks with their machine <laughs> without, their, without their machine guns, they're nothing. They're I just, get you. I, I'm yeah, with you. Take the weapons away. Yeah, I think she's number two. Okay, I, I think I think her master, who lived for a thousand years and who took out an entire Shaolin temple by himself and has not been killed outside of being treacherously assassinated by some one-eyed broad. I do like Pai Mei. I was gonna say fuck that. He, he got killed by a fish head. I understand. I get that. This is why it's subjective. This That's is why it's belief. subjective. My exactly. Belief, my belief is this is bride. Because Pai Mei got killed with a fucking fish head by by some crazed bitch with one eye. He ain't, he's not old. Well, he ain't old. As Yoda said to that. Luke, I'll say the same to her. When you live to be a thousand years old, you see how good you look. All right? Okay. Anyway. Okay. Mr. Smith, who do you think has the best weapon in the Tarantino verse? Hmm. Again, this seems like I'm answering the same thing every time, but, you know, the bride's Hanzo sword. The Hanzo sword is definitely. Well, a... yeah, because she's got the sword and she's got the uh, exploding heart technique. So. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, guns can jam. Guns can they jam. Can. Okay. They can. <laughs> but, but her Tory hands are, and that's and and also let's not let's not forget this is this is the ultimate hands Yes, yes. This is This is a, he had a shelf full of those things. He yeah. made one he made the ultimate for her. Yeah. So one that I'm will cut say, God. One that will well, cut we'll God. Well we'll get back to that later. Yes, we will. But, that's what I think. I think that's the deadliest weapon in the Tarantino verse. Now, this is a brand new question that I have to give complete credit to my special guest who was on the Jackie Brown episode and who will be on the Volume 2 episode, Mr. Ryan Rebelkin. Mr. Smith, whose career would you like to see Tarantino give a boost to in his final film, if it is, in fact, his final film? Okay. So, for me, actually pretty easy, this one for me. Mel Gibson. <laughs> Fantastic answer, Mel fucking, fucking Gibson. Gibson. Oh boy, my, oh, my oh, fucking boy. man, Mel. Okay, I won't have a bad oh. word said against Mel fucking Gibson. I'll tell you this now. Okay? People can say what they want about Mel Gibson, and but they you're do. talking about. And I, I fuck them people. You're talking about Mad Max, okay? No, I get you. So if, if we're going to go with an actor, as the body of work, Mel Gibson has done some amazing work. That's unquestionable. Much like I feel like Tom Cruise the same. I feel like if we go by the actor's body of work, the two of them have been in some unbelievable films and have pulled off some unbelievable performances. And all the accolades they've gotten for them, they well deserve. That being said, when the cameras turn off and those people aren't in front of them anymore, one is one of the craziest people on the planet, and one may be the biggest bigot, <laughs> drunk piece of shit in a long time. But 
as you're saying, this is a chance to be in front of the camera. Would you see him as being a villain, or do you think they would put him in as a hero? Where would you see him better used? I think it'd be good as a hero. I'd like him as a hero. I think, you know, people can redeem themselves. People can laugh. I agree. I agree. Okay. And Gibson could use... He could do a boost. So he would get the he would get the boost. So that's my answer. Here's some fucking facts, Jack. Now that he's had his middle-aged white man rant moment, it's time for us to get this fucking information. Fucking fuck. Fuck's given. How many times is the word fuck said in Kill Bill Volume 1? Hmm. I'm going to say not a lot. You would be correct. I'm going to say, I'm going to pull a number out of my ass and say 36. A little high. 17. Only 17 times in Volume wow. so 1. Wow. So I was half out. Yeah. Yes. Well, there you go. Yeah, I know it wasn't a lot because let's face it, it's not a hell of a lot of dialogue in the film. This is true. <laughs> But what there is a hell of a lot in Volume 1 is death. Oh, yes. Body count. How many motherfuckers are killed in Volume 1? Okay, so the, as we know, the Crazy 88. Just a cool name. It's just a cool name. It's just a cool name. But there's not 88 of them. But I'm going to say, man, this is difficult. I'm going to say around 60. You're getting there. Now, I would like to preface this. Obviously... In this movie, there is a lot of death in the House of Blue Leaves. So who's dead, who's alive is hard. So of the number yeah. that I could come up with through research, the most pointed out a lot is 95, 95 deaths in Volume 1. I don't know where they get that from. Well, you also got to think that uh, they also do show the flashback. At the church, I guess. Yep. yep. And then Vernita Green's added in there. And so look, that's I'm just going to... There's sure Buck, Buck's and test. there's Jasper, and, uh, and, and then Jasper. don't just forget about their 88. She also kills the first parts of the 88 and Go-Go, so they have so like 9 or 10 in the beginning of the film before she even gets to the the 88 who show up in the fucking okay. motorcycle. No, that's so, uh, that's so there's a quite a bit. Yep. Yeah, that's a valid point, yeah. Okay, yep. So yeah. 95. Yeah, you caught me off guard with that shit. Ooh, some bare feet sightings. How many times do we get to see bare feet in Kill Bill Volume 1? Now, as I've told before, Ooh. I preface this every time. The scene starts with someone with bare feet. If we stay with the scene, if we cut out and they're still in the scene, the bare feet are still there. It's not like every time the camera goes to bare feet. That would be a ridiculous amount of times. How many times are bare feet? Okay, so you've got the bride. You've got yep. my wife, Sophie Fatale. No. Sophie Fatale is not barefoot. She is in ah, open toe okay. shoes. That ah, is not okay. barefoot. Okay. You son of a okay. bitch. Okay. Don't so you try bride, to slide the... it in. So, okay. so you've yep. got the bride, you've got the five, six, seven, yep. eight, they're barefoot. Yep. Surely that's it, isn't it? Am I am I forgetting someone? There's one more. So we got the bride, there's three, five, six, seven, eights, isn't there? So that's, but you only see... We see two of them. See two of them. So yep. that's three. Mm-hmm. And I can't, off the top of my head, think of the other person. What's your number? Give us a guess. Well, <laughs> five. Ooh, that's a bingo. <laughs> yes. Exactly right. Five. The bride twice. The five, okay. six, seven, eights, there are two of them. So that makes four. Yeah. Yeah. And Oren, when she runs across the table to take someone's head off, is the Is she one. barefoot? Yes, she is. Okay. If you say you so. Go. I say so, goddammit. I don't know. I just love Sophie Fatale's feet so much. I got blinded by it. Yes, you did. But you got blinded the hair and shoes. But they that's are, my they future. are pretty. That's my, 
Hey, that's my future wife you're talking about. Just remember that future wife also is in Inglorious Bastards and is getting railed by a Nazi bastard. Just so you know what you got for this. Just so you know. Hey, she's she, cl- she clearly likes the bad boy. She likes either hey. you're either in part of the Nazi party or you got to be some kind of world class killer. So you better, uh, well. you better work on something there. You know what? <laughs> Maybe you hang out with Mel Gibson. You might be right up her alley. Oh, man. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Next up, the motherfucking Tarantino verse. In this film, we have three solids and four sort ofs. Number one. The solid that almost everyone should know for most part is red apple cigarettes. There is an ad in the Tokyo airport that the bride passes in the beginning of the film. Red Apple has also been in Pulp Fiction, From Dust Till Dawn, Four Rooms, Inglorious Patches, The Hateful Eight, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And who is the model in the Red Apple advert? You know what? I did not check that out. Who is the model? Please enlighten us. Sophie Fatale. Is well, it the, the actress. The actress? Is it? Okay. Well, there we go. I did not know there that. You Thank you very you much. Go. That's okay. Mr. Texas Ranger Earl McGraw, one of my favorite side characters in the history of the Tarantinoverse, returns along with his son, number one, Earl, who was also in From Dust Till Dawn and Death Proof, while his son, number one, was also in Death Proof. And Hateful Eight. He plays in the Hateful Eight as a different character. He's Obi, but I'm uh, talking sorry. about the actual uh, characters. Apologize. Thank you. I'm yes. sorry. I'll yes. shut He's also in Django. Oh, you son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Number three. Lastly, Kim's yellow colored Mustang painted up like... Game of Death from Death Proof has a little pussy wagon bumper sticker on it, homaging our pussy wagon from this film. Now our sort of. The sunglasses the bride gets off the man you would kill, Buck, are the same ones that Clarence Worley wears in True Romance. Absolutely. Fox Force 5 from Pulp Fiction, the TV pilot that Mia Wallace was on, is the basis for the Deadly Viper Assassination Squad. However, it's a big difference between the two. One kills people and one was more of a superhero kind of girl, but it was the basis for which this movie became. The song that plays while the bride swings one of the crazy eight around by her sword, Mr. Tarantino used the same song when Major Hellstrom arrives at Shoshana's movie theater in Inglorious Bastards. And lastly, there is a belief among some fans that the trucker who you would eat, who tries to rape the comatose bride in this film, is Jasper from Death Proof, who's selling the White Challenger. I don't subscribe to it. However, I don't hate it. So if people like to think that he gets his comeuppance in Kill Bill, goodbye me. me. I really don't care. And those were the facts, Jack. And now the gospel according to the almighty Tarantino. Chapter 7, Volume 1, Kill Bill, Volume 1. And now it's time for us to sharpen our swords and get ready for some bloody motherfucking revenge as we are doing Kill Bill, Volume fucking 1. And this fucking opens with another amazing way to introduce a character, especially a villain, much like we kind of get in Pulp Fiction when we do not see Marcellus Wallace except for the back of his head. For the major- or Actually, all we hear is his voice from the jury until we get the back of his head. We hardly see him until midway through the film. We actually get him face to face. We get the same thing for Bill as Bill in voiceover does that great do you find me sadistic monologue before shooting the bride in her motherfucking face, which he thought he killed her. We do not see this man throughout the entire length of this film, only parts of his body. And I absolutely love how they lead him up to be such an evil person. We don't get to see the person that we're supposed to kill, that we're supposed to be on board, that we need to kill this motherfucker until... We get to the second volume. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. It's just just brilliant, brilliant writing, brilliant piece of filming here. Now, as I've said, and I think you've chimed with me and others have, one of Tarantino's true masteries, besides writing, besides casting, is also his choice in music. 
And the Nancy Sinatra song, Bang Bang, literally tells the story of the bride and Bill. If you just sit there and listen to the words, the lyrics, it is basically the fucking wedding song for, for Bill and the Bride. I mean, literally, yeah. if you listen yeah. to the whole song, it's, it's it's such a perfect, perfect song choice. It's a very chilling piece of music. It gives me goosebumps right now. Not even hearing it, just thinking about it. I would put it up there with the theme from Pulp Fiction, Mizzaloo, the yeah. Dick Dale song. Oh, it's that. It's got that epic vibe to it. But... Little Green Bag from Reservoir Dogs as well. Well, you know, he, he, we know, we know what he does. You know, it's just what he. He's just, he just knows. And as I'm getting older and taking more time at looking at these, besides them just being cool, you know, music choices, a lot of times, not only is it a cool music choice, but it's also very symbolic. To what's happening in the film, you know, it's not just yeah. there to be. Oh, it's a cool sound, you know. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's more to it. Much like you know, stuck in the middle is cool. It works well, but this is a part of the film. This is telling you a story and what you should be getting ready for. And that's yeah. just our prelude. And then we get the very first use of chapters in Tarantino's films, which would eventually parlay into him becoming an author anyways. But this is the first movie that he does it in. Do you know the other films outside of Kill Bill Volume 1 and Volume 2 that he does chapters in? So, Inglorious Bastards. Yes. Hateful Eight. Yes. And Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? No, you were close. The last two answers you had were right. Once Upon a Time, he does not. There are no chapters. There are chapters in Inglorious Bastards and chapters in The Hateful Eight. Django Chain does not get them. Death Proof does not get them. Once Upon a Time does not get them. These are the three films or four films, however you want to look at it. Kill Bill Volume 1 and Volume 2, Inglorious Bastards, and The Hateful Eight get chapters in the film. But this is the first. Yes. And who doesn't start off chapter one with the number two? <laughs> I know. Yeah. And the great thing is, is the two and it's circled. So right off the bat, you're like, all right, I have no idea what that means. But you go, okay, number two. Let's see what this is about. Yeah. Now, we cover this pretty well coming up since this is the subject of our first Bible study. This is the, the bride fighting Miss Vernita Green, or as she's known in this film, as Jeannie Bell. Yeah. It also is what the culmination of this fight is what leads us to our discussion that we had in the birthday episode about a possible Volume 3, and is what Volume 3 in the lore of the fandom and the you know the hyperbole and the rumors online is all about is Volume 3. But we will tiptoe into this one since we have to. We get the first setup of learning about the Deadly Viper Assassination Squad, or Divas for short, which knowing how this movie is designed and why he does it, it's corny as fuck that they're called Divas. Oh, I, I have a However, hard time. I have a hard time thinking of like a diva, though. However, because of what he's setting up, and because of you think about Pulp Fiction and Fox Force 5, it does work. Because of what it is, it's homage to Kung Fu and homage to Samurai. Like, it works completely. But if it wasn't an homage, if someone just created a brand new movie, and like, oh my God, if you could, you're going to go see the new movie Divas, and you're like, the fuck's Divas about? Oh, it's the Deadly Viper Assassination Squad. You'd be like, the fuck are you talking about Divas? This is Jean-Claude Van Damme. <laughs> what is this, an even poorer man's expendables? What are you talking about, the Divas? But because it's in this film, and because it's terrible, Tarantino, and it's an homage. Anyone who's a fan of, of kung fu movies, especially from like the 70s and 80s, then this fits perfectly. Oh, but absolutely. Taken out of context of this film, you're like, what the fuck is Divas? I, I wonder if he sat there for a while and it was a real stretch. You know what I mean? He was like, he says, I got to get this to fit. There's got to be an anagram. I got to get something. I got to be able to spell something. Yeah. And he was like, yeah, I got it. Yeah. 
classic. Whose nickname would you want? Oh, I like um, L Drivers. As an L Driver or the Cottonmouth or the California Mountain Snake. That's what I'm talking about. California Mountain Snake. Yeah, California Mountain Snake. That sounds more badass to me than Cottonmouth. I hear you. And Black Mamba. I'm sure that's the name of the dildo, isn't it? Well, yes and no. So, yes, there is there is a Black Mamba dildo, and we'll leave it there. I think everyone can figure out. I mean, so I've heard. Yes. So I've heard. I mean, you know. Yeah, like I said, your search history, we do not want to get into. It's going to be. Yeah, it's going to be very alarming. <laughs> For the best, MI6 might be paying you a visit soon. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I've got, I can hear sirens outside. I like Black Mamba not because of the dildo as you do, but because one of my favorite basketball players over here in America was Kobe Bryant, and his nickname in the second half of his career was Black Mamba. So uh, I like okay. it. it the, and the funny thing is, it's around the same time that he switched over to that that moniker. So uh, yes, okay. so I, I like that one. But I just thought you know, I'd find out which diva you'd be. You know, I want to know what diva you are. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Now you know. Now, as we talked about on the Bible study, we talk about the revenge jingles, I like to call it. Did you know originally, now when I read the original script, the person who was supposed to do the music originally was Lars Ulrich from Metallica. He was originally going to be doing the music for this, and he was supposed to come up with whether it was going to be some kind of drum or something for then. Obviously, it was Rizzo from the Wu-Tang Clan ended up doing it. And of course, as we talk about, you can learn about what it actually comes from. But I absolutely love it. I absolutely loved it. I remember reading it, and I remember it saying that there would be this musical cue that would let you know every time you heard this musical cue, you would know that this was someone that she had to get revenge on. Actually, do you know the people who don't get that musical cue? But? But is one of them, yes. And Bill? Yes. Are they the only two? They are the only two. Vernita Green gets the music cue, obviously, because that's about to happen in the beginning. Yeah. Sophie Fatale gets it when she's in the bathroom. That's true. And, of course, uh, Oren gets it when she sees her when she comes out. She's standing behind Sophie, one-armed Sophie. Yeah. L Driver gets it when, what's her name, at the top of the hill, looking down at her going into Bud's trailer. Bud doesn't yeah. get it because she technically never sees Bud in time. No. You know, we don't get that chance, that face-to-face. And then Bill doesn't get it because I think when she makes that corner at the end of Volume 2, she sees her daughter. And she sees Bill. And so that never happens. We don't get that moment. So she sort of sees that daughter first. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. we never get that moment. So those are the only mm-hmm. two. Bud and Bill, the brothers, do not get the scorn look from the brother. Mm-hmm. Yeah, true. Now, as we talk about, this is a damn good fight. This is a damn, this is a way you start off a movie. When you want to start off your first action film, this is a way to start off an action film. This is fair. some serious ass whipping. Just serious, straight up. Ass whipping. Now we get into this. I was said I feel bad because we get into this a lot in the Bible. So we go through this pretty. We good. do. We do. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. we still haven't decided. So what kind of dog do we think they have? We talk a little bit more about when you, folks when you listen to the Bible, so you understand. We go into this a little more in depth. But we're trying to figure out what kind of dog must they have that when Vernita tells her daughter that her no good dog. Acted a fool, not only destroyed the living room, but also got two women bloodied. What kind of dog do we think they must have? Well, I think the comedy effect, it would have to be like a chihuahua or something like really small. Do you know what I mean? So comedy would be great. Like, but in reality, well, no, what just, kind of dog must it be to inflict that kind of damage? Well, to do that kind of damage, I guess like a, I don't know, a fucking Rottweiler. Yeah, I'm going with like a Rottweiler or yeah. what, what was the kind of dog in Turner and Hooch? Uh, I think that was uh, like um, a to the bull mastiff. Or, uh, yeah, probably. But no, I, I just think that'd be funny for the little daughter, for the little girl, you know, for the mum to say the dog did this, and the little girl's like, "What the fucking poodle?" Yeah, one, one of those little teacup chihuahuas that fits in a purse. Yeah, 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 yeah. I just think that'd be like that. <laughs> 
<laughs> but yeah, <laughs> that's what I, um... yeah, I, 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 I would like to see that. Like when she said it, you saw the little dogs poke his head around the corner and that's like yeah. a poodle or something. That would have been quite amusing, I think. Now, Vernita Green mentions after the fight, and she's they're kind of relaxing a bit while she's going to fix Nikki's cereal and shit and getting her coffee, that she coaches T-ball. What kind of T-ball coach do we think Vernita Green is? Has she fallen into the role of housewife Jeannie Bell, and she's, you know, she's Miss Prim and Proper and lives in suburbia and, you know, just kind of keeps all the white Karen moms in the suburbia. They feel safe because she's just one of them, or do you think she She's like a really tough nose, like Mike Dicka, like yelling at kids, like a real tough ass, like she is in real life as a T-ball coach. I think I think she does that, like she pulls people aside in, in secret and teaches them dirty tricks. <laughs> she, she's smiling and then leans in like whispers, if you fuck up one more time, I'm going to shove that bass so far up your ass, it's going to come out. He's just like kind of, but yet with a smile and then the mom doesn't yeah. know. <laughs> or she says something like, look, when that kid comes up running past you again, you just stick your leg out like a certain way, you'll break his fucking leg. <laughs> I really hope, I would love to see just a little, a 30 yeah. minute episode of behind the scenes of her T-ball. That's when her inner psycho comes out, isn't it? That's all she's got. That's the only competitive stuff in her life now. Again, folks, I feel like we're jipping you here, but I'm telling you, we cover this really well. And like you'll find when Mr. Rebalkin and I do the El Driver fight, we don't talk much about it because, again, Mr. Smith and I cover it really well in that second Bible study. So listen to the Bible studies to get more in-depth detail on the fight. But this chapter, the first chapter ends with us watching her go into the pussy wagon. We get the, you know, we get the introduction of the pussy wagon, one of the greatest vehicles in the history of everything. And... All of a sudden, she's sitting there looking at the house, and she pulls out this tablet of paper, and in front of it has a list. And we already have Oren Ishii's name crossed off, and we're starting at number two and realize that number two is Miss Vernita Green. Yeah. Now, I have recorded with Ryan prior to recording with you on this episode. And okay. what we discussed was, I think that that list that she makes, and we'll get into that list as we get going because it happens later in the film. I think that list is in order of people she thinks she can either find easier or almost like boss level. Like, obviously, Bill's five. But I think Bud was three and then L was four or maybe reverse. But I think she went by order of who she thinks she could kill easier. Because, obviously, Bud's got some training along with Bill. We don't know if he went with Pai Mei. But we do know that L got the least trained with Pai Mei for a while. So there seems to be a certain hierarchy of the divas who get the... The better training, I guess. I, you know, I don't know. Maybe depending on their levels and what what he, Bill sends them off, who to kill for what reasons. But it seems like there may be a hierarchy. How do you feel about that? I don't really know, but I can remember when uh, originally watched Kill Bill, and I saw Orenishi's name cross out already. Obviously, at that point, I didn't even know who Orenishi was. So I thought she might just be a character that wasn't an important character that we never got to see being killed. Ah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah, because we, we obviously we know who Renisi is now, but then yeah. we didn't. And I was like, yeah. oh, maybe that was just, who the fuck was that? And then, that I like that. Did, yeah, it was just kind of like, a, oh, well, put it this way, I didn't think much of it is what I was saying. As we get down the line here in this movie, in this volume, when we do have her fight Oren, we should know she's going to win. But there is still a moment where we don't, where there is still a moment even in the fight that we're not 100% sure she's going to. You know what I mean? There's still that tension. Yeah. Oh, you know, we were kind of like, yeah. I don't know if she's going to win. Because, mm. You know, I know it yeah, says no, she's going to win, but we're like, hmm, maybe he's going to pull the rug over our eyes. So I can remember just thinking, like, oh, oh, Ren, nah, not, who's that? Never mind. They're dead. 
Who cares? And how wrong I was. <laughs> I just think it was great balls to say, hey, guess what, folks? I've already told you. We've already killed one. You're seeing number two. And you're kind of like, oh. But then when we get to one, we see why he put one later because it is such an epic battle. It's fantastic. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. That leads us to chapter two and the blood-spattered bride. Now, this is where we get a great intro of Mr. Earl McGraw. For those of us who had seen From Dust Till Dawn years earlier, about eight years earlier, Remember right. Mr. Earl McGraw from the opening of that film and him having an untimely death at the Gecko Brothers' hands. And then all of a sudden, here he is with like 27 <laughs> sunglasses, which is an homage to Gone in 60 Seconds opening. That's correct. You're just like, oh my God, this is fantastic. And there he is. He pulls up with all this swagger Texas. And we learn that he's got a son. And yeah. his son is named number one. I know there's from a name for one. him. I forget what the name. I think it's Earl. I think it's the name maybe or something. There's a real name they have in the actual credits, but he only calls him son number one in both fucking movies that he's in with them together. And it is his real son, James yeah. Parks, who also, as you were already stepping all over, he is in Django Unchained, oh, right. and he is OB in The Hateful Eight. He, I love him. They're, they're so good together. Great actors, both of them. Yeah. But he pulls up, and this is a great scene. I love this scene. But we learned that there's been a, a real massacre. And we walk in, and we don't know how, but we have an idea. And just the way he delivers his lines every time, I love... I, I wish Michael Parks was still alive. It's too bad that he is, is passed oh, and he's no, gone. Oh, no, very sad. But such a great... I would, I would love a, a movie of just Earl McGraw. I would love the yeah. movie of that, Earl McGraw. Do you know what? I bet you that could have happened. I hope he writes even just a book. Just a book. Because, you know, Quentin can definitely get the way Michael Parks delivers his lines in his head. And I think he could yeah. write a book that would really work. But I, who knows yeah. if it will. Yeah. I don't know if such he can. Such, such a great presence, that guy. One of my favorite moments in this is when he kneels down and they're looking at her. Look at that hayseed hair, blood spatter angel. And she spits. And we learn that she's got that spit. <laughs> this auto reflex, this spit reflex that she has that just happens out of the blue and she spits and hits him in the face. I don't know when he goes, son number one, this tall drink of cocksucker ain't dead. I fucking <laughs> this tall drink of cocksucker ain't dead. Fucking love that delivery in the fucking line. It gets me every time and it's been almost fucking 20 years. I love that line. I get so excited yeah. when it's coming up. I've said no, it out of the blue for no reason sometimes. Yeah, no, that is a classic line. Definitely. Oh, I did have a little giggle. To myself when I had it recently. Whenever I've killed a bug or I think I've killed a bug, like, you know, I've hit it with a fly spurs and it's down, it's not dead yet, and I'll go, so number one, this tall drink of cocksucker ain't dead before I step on it. <laughs> it's got, it's, it's, you have to. From now on, folks, the Church of Tarantino signs off on you using that line when you have thought you've killed something and then don't. Hopefully it's an insect or something else, but use it how you may. It's ripe for the picking. It's ripe for the motherfucking picking. So after... He says his great line. We then flash to her in a hospital bed in a coma. And Twisted Nerve starts to get whistled. And once again, we get another great villain introduction with L Driver, Daryl Hannah, who Ryan Rebelkin does not enjoy in this film at all. My guest from Jackie Brown, who's on volume two, does not enjoy her in this film, does not think she's very good. I disagree a bit. I, I enjoy her in this. I thought she was pretty good. However, yeah. again, another person's opinion. I don't have to agree with it, but if that's what he sees, then he's, he's welcome to it. Listen, everyone's entitled to my opinion, okay? And he's wrong. <laughs> he's wrong. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I understand that. I mean, I enjoy her. 
I think. Uh, I think she lives in the moment of the character. Yeah, she plays it very broad, doesn't she? She's very sort of like a villainess. She of. does play very, very almost mustache twirling villain, but she's also yeah, she's, she's also playing it as a. A jealous, scorned woman. She is very jealous of the bride. Has been jealous all the time. She has been after Bill's affection for forever. And the bride has always got it, whether she was trying to or not. And I think she has been jealous. She knows the bride's better looking than her. She thinks that the bride's better at a better warrior than her. Like, there's a lot. And she wants to, like, disprove all that. And so there's a lot of jealousy and hatred towards the bride that comes from her. And I think she puts it out in her character. But we get this great intro of her walking and whistling with that amazing eye patch that she then changes yeah. over to the Red Cross and the whole getting dressed up in the nurse's outfit and then going to kill her. So we get her introduction, and then we get Bill, and Bill's just sitting there, and he's playing with a Hanzo sword that we have don't know it's a Hanzo sword yet. No, we have but no he's playing reference. with the Hanzo sword, and yeah. it's just, it's just him sitting there in that hand, opening it and kind of closing it, and it's so so well designed, such a great fucking moment and shot. Character, I mean, his introduction of characters are some of the best in cinematic history. He really knows how to introduce, especially villains. He just knows whether it's I don't show them or I give them the whole opening scene like an Inglorious Bastard. Like he just knows how to introduce them in a way that either we need to think about them and be like, "Ooh, who is this guy?" or like literally put it right in our face like a Hans Landa type intro. Yeah. Well, um, there's a revenge movie from the early seventies called. Um, thriller, a cruel picture. No. So you're not the first person to tell me of this. So I, re- again, I we're going to do a little banter, folks. I recorded a Bible study for Death Proof before I recorded with you. Okay. I recorded a couple days ago. Okay. I saw your post of this movie you're speaking of, which yeah. when you folks here was about a couple weeks ago on your socials that will be in the show yeah. notes. And this gentleman I recorded with, Sean Wheeler, he brought it up. He actually had the DVD copy. He told me about it. So I yeah. am now in the process of also ordering that. And since next season, here's a little foreshadowing, folks. Since next season, I was thinking about spending the season going through each movie, talking about the movies that he references and yeah. talking about some of those movies. This movie, I feel, is definitely going to be along with Lady uh, Snowblood, Lady for, Snowblood the, yeah. for the, for the um, Kill Bill series. Well, it's, it's, it's a sort of minor reference. Um, yes, I know. And, but Drive, Tarantino but... thinks this is one of the most violent exploitation films ever made. This film is one fucking rough movie. It's from Sweden, made in about, I think made in 1973. Yep. And it's about a young girl who gets coerced into prostitution, put her on heroin. And they scalp one of her eyes out. As you do in Sweden you, well, in the know, 70s. When in, when in, when in Sweden. Um, and basically, she puts money aside to train herself in martial arts, etc., to get her As revenge you do on her in cat. Sweden. And I'll tell you, right, listen, this is a good fucking movie, okay? A lot of people say, oh, it's a horrible bear of pussies. This is a fucking great revenge movie. It's unlike anything else you've ever seen. It's got hardcore pornography in it. When they scalp her eye out, they use a real corpse. Wow. It's a fucking rough movie. I'm going to end this quickly because, you know, we, this, we're not talking about that film. But we, we will hear from now. The fashion, but yeah, but the fashion of Eldron kind of loosely based on the, the character from this film. Now, it's called um, Thriller, A Cruel Picture, which is the hard version of it. And there's also a soft, there's also a softer version called They Call I One Eye. I thought it was called Thriller for you pro-clutching pussies. 
No, yeah. they changed the name. It was it was short. Sh- sh- they do anyway. But I I digress. It's just it's a great. It's one of the greatest revenge movies, but it's also probably, in my opinion, the roughest revenge movie. And it is awesome. And everyone should track it down. You can I think you can get it from Vinegar Syndrome, which is a kind of label like Arrow but for the American side of things. But it's great. Track it down. That's all I I'm will. Say and we will be we'll talking cover, about it in a year from now. Yeah, we'll I cover guarantee. it later. But yes. anyway, that was it. I just wanted to get that in there because it is fucking amazing. But anyway, so yeah, we're at the hospital. Yes, so I was going to ask you a question. I'm sorry. How was Bill able to get his daughter? Because obviously somehow he gets his daughter from the hospital. Considering there's a murder investigating surrounding the bride's circumstances, how is, do we think Bill was able to just ninja his way in and snatch his daughter out of the hospital. I have a theory. Ooh, she already been thinking about this. Fantastic. Well, Vanita Green's husband is a doctor. Uh, well played, sir. They do live in California, but I, I'm, I'm going with you, so I see where this is going. Maybe, and maybe he sets well, he's her up the, afterwards. He's, I, he's got, the connect, got the connections is what I'm saying. I haven't thought this through thoroughly, but that's a stretch. But Which would lean into why, we th- why uh, we'd be able to pass off that uh, he was killed by the bride that Elle kills him later on in our volume three. I'm liking Boom. the threads. The threads See, are tying up. Folks, it's this done. It Tarantino, this let's a, fucking do this. We've got this. This is right. how it works, ladies and gentlemen. This is how it works, okay? So that's a theory. Possible. I do love, though, how Bill tells Elle that they have principles considering they just murdered her while their entire wedding party, and she's in a coma and took her baby. I like it. He's like, they're not going to murder her in her sleep because they have principles. Yeah. <laughs> it is, that's how well, you know that the, someone's a narcissist. Like, they, you know, you know they're a terrible person, but yet they still think they have principles. They still like they still like to pretend that they're somehow have moral, some kind of moral compass, yet, you know, to try to is. make right this bullshit they do. It's I always find that line now that I've been researching it. But just, I always find that very funny that he's like, no, we have principles. He's like, she's losing her fucking mind. It's like, get the fuck out of here. Come on. Yeah, no, that's one of those, one of those funny little things where you think, uh, moral? Yeah, yeah. We will show up and we will murder all the people who do not have anything to do with our world because she had the balls to, to want to marry this guy in a church. We will beat the shit out of her while she is visibly pregnant, all of us, and then I will will shoot her in the fucking head. If, and this is my only caveat, if somehow she survives all that, we will not put poison in her veins while she's sleeping in a coma. That's no. that's the line I will not cross. All this other an- stuff, I will do. I won't do the other one. We're not animals here, you know. Now, when she wakes up from the coma, I did some research and I couldn't find anything. So if anybody listening to this finds this, reach out to us on the socials. It's in the show notes. I say that every time. No one reaches out. You sons of bitches. Not people do reach out. Can you tell how long you've been alive by counting lines in your hands? Like when she wakes up and she looks in her palm, and I'm like, what lines is she counting? Like I looked at my hand. I'm going, I don't think these lines have changed in years. But she looks at her hand. She goes, four years. I'm like, where does she get this four years shit? Like, is there some kind of palm reading? I mean, you're from England. Yeah, you've got a bunch of gypsies over there. Is there some kind <laughs> of gypsy thing where you can read palms and know how long you've been in a coma? Like, is that a thing? Like, we're in fantasy land here. Right now. I get it, but I'm trying to, there's then there's got to be a movie reference, so I'm trying to figure out what's the reference, what kung fu movie movie is reference where someone looked at their hand and was able to tell that they've been in a coma or they just lived, a span of four years had passed by looking at their hand. I have no answer for that. I don't know. Okay. I don't know. So we're leaving it up to you, the listener. Does anybody know? Clue us in, guys. Why? Clue us in. Someone out there knows. And I will give you credit. I will put it on social, and then I will chime you out in another episode a couple months from now. But please, let us know if anyone knows 
why that's a fucking thing. So I, I'm just I'm curious as to how she looks at her hand and goes, oh, yep, there we go. Yeah, I have no idea. You got me on that one. Then we get Buck the coma fucker and his buddy the trucker moment. And it is such a reprehensible scene. And Tarantino does a great job because as you're talking about the movie you were just speaking of, obviously he's a big fan of Grindhouse films. He's a big fan of B-movies. He's a big fan of exploitation movies. So he has seen movies like the one we talked about. He has seen Thriller. Absolutely. This is not the Michael Jackson video. This is nothing to do with Michael Jackson. Oh, no, it's just no. complete coincidence that they both would then 10 years Michael later have ja- a music. Michael Jackson, is fri- yeah, Michael Jackson is frightening for all kind of <laughs> different reasons. reasons. He doesn't show her being raped by Buck. We have this you know, flashback that she may, in her coma state, may have been lucid for a minute and remembers him saying, you know, my name's Buck and I'm here to fuck kind of thing. In a exploitation movie, they might might have shown a flashback to it happening yeah, and her waking yeah. up to it. So he doesn't do that. We don't need that. We just get that great line of dialogue that he delivers. And then I was seeing the results of what happens. <laughs> Two things. And this is a great nod to the prop master and a great nod to Tarantino. That Vaseline that he throws him is fucking just the most disgusting jar of Vaseline I have ever seen. Is it called Vaseline? I, I thought it was Vaseline. I thought, oh, well, maybe change it for the thing, but it's I, just I think, Yeah, I think they changed Yeah. I think that's a brand name, isn't it? So I think they call it Vaseline. It actually sounds oh, worse. Not... Vaseline sounds awful. Yeah. Vaseline is so says, much better. Yeah, but, but when he says, I'm Buck and I'm here to fuck, that's actually a line from um, yes. Toby Hooper's Eating Alive. Yes. Which um, Robert England says, actually, in, in Eating Alive. But yeah, that's such a lie. But that leads to my second point. What kind of hospital in Dallas allows you to just get hired on with the name Buck on tattooed on your one hand and the word fuck tattooed on the other hand? Like, who's hiring an orderly or whatever he is, a doctor, a nurse, to just walk the hallways of their hospital with the words fuck tattooed on his fucking knuckles? And this is back in 2003. So this is before there's, you know, the... The tattoo revolution of people getting hand tattoos and neck tattoos and face tattoos. This is prior to all this stuff happening. Yeah, Plus, did I mention knows. it's Texas? You I mean, you want to talk about watertight asshole conservative. Texas, there you go. Yeah. Uh, who knows how that worked? He was obviously fucking someone there. I don't know. <laughs> he, he, slept, he slept his way to the top, yeah. obviously. Now, she wakes up. Bites his lip to pull him close, and then, then rips his neck open. If anyone doesn't understand, you know, because they kind of cut from that, is she basically bit his lip and pulled him close, yeah. and then bit his juggler and ripped his neck out like she was a goddamn fucking tiger, and he dies. She's the deadliest woman alive. Yes, woman, deadliest woman alive. That's why, no, yeah, yeah, I guess. No, no, I'm just kidding. The whole pie may thing. Never mind you. It's late. It's late in England right now, folks. We're recording. He's a little loopy. Yeah. Buck says to his buddy, "You got 20 minutes. We'll be back in 20 minutes." Like I know we did a little cut, but it was a quick 20 minutes. Like I don't know they gave him the full 20. I'm just saying I don't think they gave him the full say, 20. It feels like it was really some, quick. They, some horrible shit gets said in that moment. A lot of horrible shit. You know, when he's like, but the delivery well, is like, so like matter of fact. It? It's yeah. So, well, like, yeah. Doesn't he say like, no, don't, don't leave don't He is going the through face, the rules you know? like. He's going through the rules like he's a flight attendant. <laughs> like here's here's the safety rules for today's in flight. <laughs> well, like, he says something like he's something like she's, he's like, she's a spitter. It's a motor well, reflex, but spitter no spit, no punching, no biting, no just no loose And he teeth. says, um, well, he says um, a cooch is as dry. As yeah, sometimes a cooch is as dry as a bucket of sand. So you might need this. <laughs> so. 
Uh, so when he does get murdered, and he gets, I mean, <laughs> I don't feel bad for Buck, but when she walks into the room and he's like, oh, he's like kind of blown away. What the fuck happened? And she cuts his fucking Achilles out from him. Man, that's got her. And then she's slamming his head in the door. He's like, please stop hitting me. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess, um, I guess Eli Roth stole that for Hostel, didn't he? Oh, yeah. He does that, yeah. he does that in Hostel, doesn't he? So I'm, I'm assuming he got yeah. that killed there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, what a great. <laughs> please stop hitting well, please stop doing that whatever he says. Every time a rapist or someone who has done some things to women, they, they usually meet their end in a Tarantino movie pretty pretty gruesomely. Pretty gruesomely. He's a very moralistic filmmaker, yeah. isn't he? So. And then we get the pussy wagon, the, the official introduction to the beautiful pussy wagon. <laughs> Again, a man driving a truck that says pussy wagon that parks in employee parking at the hospital has the words <laughs> fuck on his knuckles tattooed. I'm just saying the hiring practices in Texas, Dallas especially, are very, very loose. I'm just saying. There's not a lot of vetting going on when they're hiring their night crew in Texas at, uh, again, at this hospital. Just like Michael Jackson, he blended right into society unnoticed. This is true. <laughs> Physical acting in this film is fantastic. As you said, there's not a lot of dialogue for the most part, especially when, as we get further into this part. But the physical acting of Uma Thurman to the strain she shows of pulling herself into the pussy wagon, to get herself in to the wagon. Because, you know, she, her body's in atrophy, or most of her muscles. She can't move her legs. So she's using whatever body strength she has, which is obviously at that moment very little. And like she almost gets, she gets tears coming down her face from the strain. She is exerting to get herself into this vehicle. Yeah, very great. Yeah, very good. It's uh, such a great moment. Great physical act. Right. And then the cinematography and the shot selection that Tarantino has, and then Sally's editing of her saying, wiggle your big toe. And just looking at her feet. And we get the, you know, the close-ups, and we're all just sitting there waiting, like anticipating, when will the toe wiggle? And they, you know, like we're almost with her, like, come on, maybe, like wiggle your fucking toe. And they leave us in suspense because we move on to Oren Ishii, the origin of Oren. The origin of Oren Ishii. This takes such a turn because when he goes into anime, most films couldn't handle this. Most films that aren't, you know, like we talked about it in Natural One Killers, he, you know, they did it there, but that was yeah. for a purpose. That was yeah, to kind of was... show the psyche. This goes in and we, I mean, we just go from live action to we're going to tell this whole section, which again, I think works because he's talking about a pedophile. Yeah, and also the violence that is shown. He could go as extreme as he wanted with it that way. I also think he's doing an homage to, I mean, a complete homage to Asian cinema at the oh, time. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I think he's covering a lot of ground. Yeah, he's got... Intentional, intentional or not, doing it anime style allowed him to get away with far more violence than he would have if it was live action. And also, as you pointed out, that was a nod to another style of Asian filmmaking. And you don't want to get a child actress well, of course, to exactly, play young no. Ren to then have to do what the anime actress is able to do, which is she kind of uses her youngness to find he's a pedophile and almost sell herself to him and then get him in a vulnerable position yeah. and then be able to kill yeah. the, the boss uh, who kills her, her parents. Yeah, I mean, the anime just gives him carte blanche to just do what the fuck he wants to do. And what I love about that sequence is, and I know I'm not on the, the Kill Bill Volume 2, but to tie them both in, what he does with the Oranishi scene and the, uh, the bride trying to get her feet to move, he does the same thing when the bride is buried. Yes, yes, we do a cut back. Yes, yep. Yeah, because, because while you're watching the O-Ren sequence in, with the anime, you've totally sort of by then, you're so engrossed in that, 
you've forgotten that the bride is in the back of the pussy wag. Yes. Just like when you're watching the Pi May scene with all the groovy montages and everything, you forget you almost forget that the bride's actually buried six feet deep in the graveyard. So he just does this thing where you're just so engrossed in what's yeah, happening. We in talked front about of it in Reservoir Dogs. He does it with the commode story. Absolutely, yeah. So he does this thing. He pulls you out of the story. You forget that uh, Mr. Orange has just revealed himself as the, yeah, the and rat. Not even and now happening. we're in yeah, we're in this commode like story. Saying, like it's not even yeah. happening and we're just totally yep. in there with it. So yep. The, the, the anime sequence, I think a lot of filmmakers would have got laughed out of the room when they, if they would have come up with that in some kind of board. Well, he also decided to go to a great studio. And I forget the name of the studio, but they did a phenomenal job. It's one of my favorite animes I've ever watched. Like, it's up there with, again, it's only on a, a small section, obviously. But it's up there with, like, Akira. Like, it's a well-done anime. It probably is the same guys. Yeah, it could know. be. Now, did you know, in this, Mr. David Carradine says he's the man who kills Oren's father. Well, the I guy was, with the sword. You, you, yeah, you, QT has never confirmed there. this, and I call bullshit, and I'll explain why. There's no way he could be the guy, because there's no way Oren would have worked for him and not killed him. A, there's that, and B, I think in the credit sequence, that character is called, is it called Pretty Ricky or something? I think so, yes. I think yeah. because he's got the sword, but the sword, if you also watch the sword, does not have... That no. devil, the Japanese Oni uh, symbol I that I mean. actually got a yeah. tattoo of on my arm, yeah. that is on Bill's sword that he got from Hattori. So I get what yeah. David Carradine yeah. at the time was trying to say, but there's, in my opinion, there's no fucking way he's the same guy. And yes, I think it is like pretty Ricky or something like that. Yeah, I think he was he was probably whacked out his head on drugs at the time and like, <laughs> striking himself in a wardrobe somewhere. I don't know. But listen. That doesn't make no, narrative makes no sense, narrative sense, does it? That no. he would be... Just like when we talked about Pai no, Mei being so, alive um, in one of the but Bible I, studies. I must admit... Pai Mei would not have allowed exactly, Elle to yeah. poison him and not got not only revenge on her, but also killed Bill. Yeah. But I must admit, for a long time, I did think that was Bill. It just makes no sense, because she goes on a revenge to kill him. She would it never then go work for him. No. And I don't think Bill would let her yeah. work for him anyway. Yeah. I think Bill would kill no, him. Absolutely. He's not going to let someone who wants revenge on him to, to yeah. live, you know, if he knows this. yeah, And to work for him, yeah. Yeah, no. Yeah, so that doesn't quite add up. And I don't, and again, I, you know, we don't know the backstory of Bill, but I, he may be a, a treacherous motherfucker, but I don't see him working for someone who's a pedophile. I don't see that being his ball of tricks. I mean, I'm, I'm sure he'll do horrible things to people for great amounts of money, but I don't see him being run by someone who's a, a pedophile. I just don't see that. Well, as we later find out, Bill's actually a rather good dad. Yes, yeah, I know. That's the surprise. Like, hey, he's a horrible human being otherwise, but goddamn good father. And this being yeah. recorded the day after Father's Day, I did have Bill as our father. Father's Day. <laughs> Salute to <laughs> all fathers. I had Bill. Oh, you did? Yeah, that's true. So Oren and Bride have a lot more in common than we really realize, and I don't think they even realize. Well, obviously the Bride knows because she's heard the story of Oren, but they both have been victims of sexual assault. They both have been the victims of sexual violence. And true. both yeah. women have gotten extraordinarily brutal revenge on those people. And anyone who is wondering why, as we get, when we get closer to the House of Blue Leaves, and like there's these sequences with like these giant blood spurts, and you're kind of like, well, that's a lot of blood to be shooting out. It's one an homage to the movies, but the scene in which she kills the guy and pulls the sword out, the amount of blood that the anime has spraying out of, the, like all of his body fluids came out at one time on that on that spray. Like he's got more blood that shoots out from that wound in that anime sequence than I think is in the human body. I don't think you've got that much blood in you. The way it just, I mean, it paints the wall behind her. It's just like yeah. I mean, her silhouette oh, on the it. wall. Yeah, an amazing, amazing scene. 
that anime. I mean, it just and then it just keeps moving, and you know, we kind of get to see who she is as a killer. I mean, so it's a great character development to let us know because now it's doing the same kind of thing. It's letting us know, like the whole foot massage dialogue in Pulp Fiction is letting us know about Marcellus. It's letting us know about Oren without ever really seeing her, and we now know that Oren is someone who shouldn't be fucked with either. Like she is definitely a deadly person. It's kind of yeah. letting us know, like, hey. You may remember that we already crossed off Oren. Well, you should be ready for the kind of fight that she's going to go through to kill Oren because it's not just going to be some easy third grade child that she's going to have to walk through. She's going to have to really earn this number one kill. Yeah, and so also, you know, to show the kind of influences that are going through Tarantino's head when he's making this revenge movie, you know, in that anime sequence, you've got... Um, You've got spaghetti western music and black exploitation yes. playing side by side as well. So you're in this totally like crazy sort of world that can only really, really have come from him. No one else would have done that. So you've got, you know, you've got age, you've got anime, you've got spaghetti western, and you've got black exploitation all taking place in the same little, you know, six minute yeah. segment. That's just a crazy thing that you've never seen before and you probably never will again. Because no one has the mastery that he does. Well, there you go. This is why he's who he is. You know? Yeah, and this is why this movie, I think, put him into the lexicon of the greats of all time. Because in the 90s, he has, you know, obviously he's got a lot of crime films he's doing. I think all, a lot of them uh, were influenced by his mo- the, the crime movies of the 70s and his love of those. And I think maybe he took that six-year break to be like, you know what? I'm going to start really moving away from just that and show that I'm more than just a one-trick pony. I can do more than just your L.A. crime type stories, your, yeah. you know, well, your, your think... gangster movies. I'm going to show you the love of films I have, and I'm going to show you how I'm going to take what I love about these great B movies, and I'm going to make them better and more accessible to yeah. the whole world yeah. than, than just no, you know, the, the fans. Well, I think he was probably feeling painted into a corner slightly of the kind of noir crime thing like you're talking about. And he's saying, hang on a minute. I grew up on a heavy diet of exploitation and martial arts movies and spaghetti westerns and, you know, all kinds of crazy shit. And I'm going to interject that into my movies because I'm not just a guy who makes movies about gangsters and the, under, the American underworld, you know. So this is what we get. You know, this is him firing on all, all exploitation cylinders. cylinders, you know. He's just fucking going for it, and he's cramming as much in. You know, and there's another thing. I will just quickly say this. People who say all he does is steal from other movies, yeah? It's like, well, how come no one's been able... If it's that easy, how come no one's been able to steal... <laughs> how come no one's been able to steal from him and make that successful? So that just goes to yeah. show what a bunch of bullshit that is when people say that. When people say that, it just makes me think you don't know the fuck you're talking about. They don't because what they reference is they'll reference that, oh, yeah, he took this shot from another film that did the same kind of shot. Okay, yeah, yeah m- maybe he did. However, it's not the same movie. He does it differently. He does it his own style. And in my opinion, it's more memorable. I'm just going to be honest. It's more memorable. The man knows how. Well, he wouldn't do it if it wasn't. Would... Yes, and he know- he knows what he's doing. Yeah, he may he yeah. may like the framing he saw in another film, but how many times... He's not the only person who's done that. How about this? If you're a fan of Breaking Bad, which I'm a huge fan of Breaking Bad, Breaking Bad, you can go watch, and maybe this will be the spinoff podcast I do once this is done, once he does his last film, is go back and find... How many, and you can you can find them on the internet, how many shots from Reservoir Dogs and his movies in Pulp Fiction, because they're huge fans, the guys who created Breaking Bad, of 
Tarantino stuff. There is so much of Tarantino world in there, which may be why I loved the end of loving the show so much without even knowing it. I was just you know kind of getting it refed to me. They pay homage to Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction in so many different shots. It's unbelievable. You can see them side by side. Difference being, obviously, there's the uh, Mr. White, Mr. Pink. You know, one on the floor, one standing up, and then I think Jesse Pinkman does it to Mr. White. The reverse of that. Hello, the guy's last name is Pinkman. He's Mr. White. Like, there's so much that he that they took, but it's its own story. Like, it's it's a completely different story. They pay a little homage to it. It's got references. It's got shots that are familiar and and similar. But they're different stories. They tell different stories, and they work. So when you're a true craftsman, you can take what you've seen someone else do, and you can make it better. That what do you think chefs do? You think all great food comes from one person? Come on. The stuff your parents make, someone else taught them how to make it, and maybe they make it better. Because we've all had dishes that have the same ingredients, but someone makes it better. Someone always makes it better than the other person. If you've ever had one of those like chili cook-offs kind of things, or whatever they have over in... Or right, fish yeah. and chips bullshit. I'm just kidding. Um, Whoa. As I just totally shit on my English fan. No, I'm just totally messing with you. But, you know, you it, there's a certain dish that people make, and a lot of people try it, and there's always one person or a dessert that makes it better. They just know how to put the ingredients together better, and that's exactly what Tarantino does for all you haters, which I'm, I'm surprised if there's a lot of haters on this podcast. I, yeah, what are you doing hey, listening to this? Yeah. yeah. Anyway, because they want to be part of the club. Moving swift, moving swiftly along. Anyways, we're going to jump to chapter four because what you're kind of talking about plays into this. The man from Okinawa in this film. Those of you who are true Tarantino fans, those of you who are Gen Xers who grew up with this, all right? True romance. You're sitting in the theater. The first thing that happens after he talks about Elvis, he goes to see how many kung fu movies? Three. Who stars? In these kung fu movies called Street Fighter, Street Fighter 2, and Sister Street Fighter, who's the star? Sonny Chiba. Sonny fucking Chiba. Who's the man from Okinawa? Who's Hattori Hanzo? Sonny fucking Chiba. The man. In Pulp the Fiction, land. they're sitting at a diner. Jules has had a moment of God touching him. And he says he's going to walk the earth. Like who? Kane. Kane. From what show? Kung Fu. Kung who played fu. Kane? David Carradine. There you go. In Reservoir Dogs, they're talking about... Pam Greer. Who shows up in Jackie Brown as the lead? Pam Greer. So all these people that he has talked about, suddenly they're in front of us. They're alive. These actors that he has already had other people reference are now sitting on screen in front of us. And the great Hattori Hanzo character, played by the late, great Sonny Chiba. We get him. And what an amazing moment. This unassuming, elder Japanese man who makes... Sushi and apparently Okinawa is known for having the worst sushi in the islands of Japan. So him having bad sushi was intentional. That he just lives in Okinawa, and we get this little blonde-haired American girl, bubbly girl, walking in in the bride, playing all cutesy and all flirty. And what a great setup! What an amazing setup for this whole entire scene. I was just going to say because in Kill Bill Two. Bill says to Beatrix about, does he still make that terrible sushi? Yeah, has the sushi gotten any better? <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah. Well, it just reminded me of that as you, as you mentioned it. But it's great. He Here's this master swordsman, this master sword maker, master swordsman, basically uh, uh, keeping the lineage of the samurai culture alive. He, he's just hidden. He's like Superman. It's funny. He's like Superman. He is Hattori Hanzo. Every day he wakes up as Satori Hanzo, like this little thing that Bill says in Volume 2. Every day he pretends to be a sushi chef, when in reality, he's a Tori motherfucking Hanzo. Yeah. The man, the myth, the legend. Yeah. When... She finally says, I'm looking for someone. Who would you pay looking for? And she says, Hattori Hanzo. And you hear the glass break. 
yeah, from, out, out from the, the bald guy in the back. And you see him yeah. just pause. And he turns around. Why are you looking for Tori Hanzo? Because I need Japanese steel. Japanese it leads steel. to one of my favorite emotional scenes. And people are going to think this is crazy. When you I'm, talk glad about music, you, I'm, I'm glad you just said that. Carry on. When we go up into the above Attic loft, above or, yeah. the restaurant, and they've got that music playing, and she is in awe walking in front of, and obviously she has heard the lore of a Tori Hanzo from Bill before and knows all about it. And there she is walking in front of the swords that he has made. And she almost wants to go grab one. And then she's like, doesn't even think about it. She turns around. She goes, may I? And he goes, yes. And then she goes, great. He goes, no, not that one. Try this one. And just the music. And then the way she grabs it, like, it gives me chills not talking about it. It's just, ah, it's so beautifully shot. So the music is perfect. Her it's reverence very, is amazing. It's very, yeah, exactly. It's very sincere. It's actually very touching. Like you say, with that music and, and the way she she reaches for the sword but hesitates and looks at him and he's like, try the second one down. And when she's got that lying in her palms, she just feels that whatever it is, that kind of... So I'm a huge samurai fan. I think one of the reasons I am is because of my love for Star Wars and seeing Star Wars as a young kid and wanting to be a Jedi. So when she's walking with those swords, I can o- I could only imagine if like I walked and there were real lightsabers and like there they are in front of you and you just kind of walk up to them and you're just in awe. You've heard about these mythical things forever and then they're right in front of you and you're almost too afraid to touch them. You're almost... You know the power with which they have. And, yes, you know, The reverence with which you need to have, you know, not just some... Slack John motherfucker just walks in off the street and says, hey, look at these Thor. Woo, woo, woo. You think you're a pirate. but And I always love the way the sound, just when she, un- finally she said that sound, that metal, that long like, hold. Almost like yeah. A, yeah. Hard to describe that word. It's, it's like, like a, a metal ting. It's like it's almost like, like a, a tinnitus. Hum. Yeah, but it's just. Yeah, like a hum. And then yeah, it comes, and oh. Yeah. Such a beautiful sound. But like you said, you know, that, that is the one moment in the film where there's some like genuine emotion. There is like a strange. Yes, she she's overtaken. She's overcome with. It's like she's like the one of a better term. She's starstruck. Yes, exactly. Yeah, she yeah, is yeah, absolutely yeah. starstruck by them, not by the man and by his reputation. It would be how it would be if I got to met Tarantino for the first time. You know, if yeah. he was like, "Hey, you want to come by my house?" I I don't know. I'd be like, probably wouldn't be able to talk. I'd just be standing there, just like almost in awe. Yeah. Like, what you you want to do? What? So yeah. Yeah, but so I, just, that, I love it. It's such a tender and sweet moment. Very, I love yeah, it. very powerful sequence, basically. That whole part. So you like to play with samurai swords. I, I like, like baseball. baseball. Yeah. Now, I'm going to ask you, you probably know this, but maybe you did your research. But in case you don't, I'm going to say this and ask you so that our listeners can know. Did you know they actually cut that baseball in half in that shot? No. Zoe Bell, as her stunt double, actually cut the baseball. So that just tells you how sharp that sword was. And it gives you a little more reverence for how cool Zoe Bell fucking is to Absolutely. cut a baseball in half with a samurai sword. Absolutely. And now I, now I want that sword because that is cool shit. Wow. So now you know just how sharp. Yeah. Well, I did not. I did not know that. Now you do. And as I said in the old G.I. Joe, knowing is half the battle. Yo, Joe. I don't know if you're a fan of other MCU stuff. My favorite Marvel stuff is the X-Men. My favorite is Wolverine. To me, he is the piece de resistance as far as superheroes go. He has adamantium claws. So my question for you, and it was originally the reason I'm asking this question is because I was going to ask my first guest, who is a big geek about comic books. I don't know how big a fan you are of the X-Men or even Wolverine, but you should know the, the term of adamantium. Adamantium being supposedly the sharpest and strongest metal ever. Do we think a Tori Hanzo's sword is as sharp or sharper than adamantium? 
I'm going to say yes. I agree. I feel like they got to be on the same level. I feel yeah, like it's maybe no. the only thing they can. It's at least equal. Let's put it that way. Yes, agreed. At least equal for sure. We'll, yeah, we'll go that. We'll we'll, yeah. we'll sit on we'll sit on the fence on that. That whole sequence, the man from Okinawa, is fantastic. This is very powerful, very touched. Well, the sword reveal at the end, when he finally makes the sword for her, and he's sitting there in the white robes, and he's presenting the sword to her, and that whole speech, which we talked about, where he has broken his his vow. His, his vow. And, that, you know, and yeah. with no ego, he says, this is the greatest sword he has ever made. So great that if on your journey you should come across, counter God, God will be cut. When it's said with such reverence the way he says it, not with, you know, like he said, with no ego. Not He's not like trying to be a badass, but like just saying like, you know, I have broken an oath I said I would never do again. But if I'm going to do it, I'm going to make the greatest sword ever made by a man. And sure enough, he has. And, and you believe it. And it's so well lit. That scene is so well lit as well. It's just got a magical... Mm. But that's exactly what he's trying to get across, isn't it? Yes. You're in, you're in the Tarantino. Yes. You're in the fantasy land. This yes. He's given it just as much power and visual... He has seen this kind of thing in other samurai films before, but he is giving it the justice that maybe those filmmakers didn't... Or, and the ability that those filmmakers didn't have. He is giving it the reverence that it deserves with a man who is... Uh, who he obviously loves in his movies. Yeah. Now... I don't know if I, I'm going to say that these probably commercials didn't make it across the pond. But in the late 80s, maybe early 90s, I think it was, we have a lot of these commercials selling like um, songs of the 60s on tape, like all these little things. Now, there was a guy over here who's worldwide. Do you remember the name Zamfir, Master of the Pan Flute? No. They would sell over here these like Time Life audio recordings of Zamfir's greatest hits, whatever. Zamfir's song, this guy, this pan flute guy, is in this part. He's the that little. Is that the lonely? The Lonely Shepherd, is it Yes, he's the yeah. Lonely Shepherd. It's phenomenal. But if you look up Zamfir, you would never expect his music to be in this That's fucking another movie. another way just goes to show how clever he is, yeah. But, yeah, but yeah. it also goes to show that he probably heard that fucking flute thing they were selling over in the 80s and 90s and remembered it and was like, you know, that guy has a sound I might want to put in. I'm sure I saw an interview with him where he said, well, heard an interview with Tarantino where he said he heard it in a restaurant. You know what? It probably would have very well I'm have been sure, played I'm as sure a background that's what song. I yeah. heard. He's heard it in the background in a restaurant. He was like, what's this piece of music? And that's why I used it in Kill Bill. That's what I remember. Anyway, but yeah, what a great scene. What yeah. a great part of the film. That's the main, that's the only part of the film that's got that dreamlike quality to it. Yes. And I almost forgot, but this is also it builds more towards Bill's mythology. And reputation. Because yeah. she says, considering the vermin, you're kind yeah, of responsible you. for all you guys. And he just walks over and writes the name without saying it. And they continue to build who this guy is. Yeah, and then what does the bride do? Rubs him out. She does rub well. She sorry, folks. She rubs the name out. She does not go and rub out Hattori Hanzo. You sick bastard! How dare you insinuate? She's I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. You haven't you haven't seen the whole bloody affair. I have. <laughs> that's payment for the sword. Oh yeah. man, that's definitely not something we so want she, to see. So the, I just I, I just remember when she rubs the name out. I was like, yeah, that's kind of there's a oh yeah. There's oh, yeah, that's intentional. Yeah. There's some symbolism going on yep. there, you know. Uh, but, yeah, yeah, fantastic sort of 
moment. That leads to her flying from Okinawa with the sword to Japan. Let's talk about Japanese airlines real quick. That's security, man. Is everyone... So here's the thing. I couldn't decide. Does everyone... Every time I see this movie, I go, is everyone have a samurai sword or are they using them as like armrests? Like, is that like kind of the thing? Like, they have like the samurai sword thing built into the armrest, like, you know, like the cup holder thing. Like, so each aisle has one. Like, and this is after 2001. It just feels like Japanese airways in this movie are really loose when it comes to security and what weapons <laughs> well, can and that- can't Come on a plane. I, I, no, you can carry a samurai sword on the plane. Uh, you don't even need to check it in baggage. No, you can carry a samurai sword on the plane if you're in business class. Gotcha. There we go. This it's samurai class. That's a different yeah, class. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's you're a bit, samurai that's class a, up there. That's yakuza. That's yakuza class. So that is your uh, briefcase practice. And this is the biggest chunk of the movie, too, this last chapter. It takes up, a, Jesus, almost an it feels like almost an hour. It's about 45 minutes or so. So it's the biggest chapter in the film. Well, yeah, no, it is literally 40, you just said it, it's literally 40, 45 minutes of the film. The okay. last. I, I, thought, I thought it was released. somewhere in that point, yep. Yeah, yeah, no, it is, yeah, absolutely. So it's, the interesting thing is we jump back to find out where Oren has been lately and that we find out she's just taken over the Yakuza. And some people aren't too happy about that. What the fuck did Tanaka think was going to happen when Oren jumped up on the table and ran down to his end? Why he just like sat there and took it? Like he didn't get up to defend himself? Nothing. He just sat there, pissed off with his hand being bloody, and because fucking head chopped off. What was well, going? Th- he just thinks she's just some stupid little girl. Yes. You know. Yes. I don't think he knows how deadly she truly is. Well, no. Let's think of, you know, let's say uh, Japanese culture, you know. Um, no, you're right. No, you're right. There, there's a lot of cultures where very much cheese, you know, a very much cheese yeah. culture. Yep, a lot of yeah, them. Yeah, and he probably there. thinks, what's this stupid little girl going to do? <laughs> and, yeah. he, and she's also part Chinese, part American. So right off that, he doesn't even doesn't even give so her time exactly. because she's not even a, a full-blood, so to speak. Exactly. Not a full-blooded Japanese. So he's just thinking, this stupid little girl thinks she's just going to come in here and take over. She won't stand a fucking chance. <laughs> little does he know, he's about to... <laughs> to lose his head over it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Quite literally, quite literally. Well, she goes back to English to explain the, the tough parts. Yeah, so, yeah, he, he meets a rather sticky end as well, yeah, so things don't work out for that guy. No, and so, again, Tarantino being the consummate homage that he is, and person who pays respects to the films that came before him that he fell in love with, did you know the set, the miniature, we get miniatures in this, yeah. the miniature of Tokyo that the plane flies over as, the uh, as she's arriving. The name of the Godzilla movie at that time, I it was very long. So it was a recent Godzilla movie that had just been filmed, and they had this leftover part of the set, and they used it. And I, I absolutely love it. You know it's a miniature when it happens, but it's just so beautiful. I love the fact that he used that as well. Like, he really dips his toes into so many different genres and different things that we hadn't seen before from him. And that being another instance of that. That whole part when the plane's coming into land, you know, she's, um, I think that's when we see her on the mo- motorbike. Yes, then, then she's in the kiss of death, or the kiss of death, the uh, game, game of, of death, death outfit with the helmet on the motorcycle. The bike. And we get the flight of the bumblebee playing. As she's riding, as she catches up to your wife, Sophie Fatel, who's on the phone. Showing her sexy toes. And then she speeds off through the tunnel, and we get one of my favorite sequences in all of film. One of the coolest walk-up intros ever. When we get Oren and her posse entering the house of Blue Leaves. Yes, we do. I absolutely love that song. I absolutely love the Battle of Honor and... 
Battles of Honor and Battle of, Battle of the Honor and Humanity. Honor and Humanity. Yes, it. I absolutely love that song, and that is—I mean—that has been used so much. That is so iconic now. Obviously, it came from—I think he said it was on a Japanese TV show. He saw it or another Japanese movie, and he wanted to use that piece of music. That is the name of a Japanese series of films that were remade. So I think they were made in the late sixties, mid seventies, and I think they remade them in the eighties. So I guess they're the eighties versions by the sound of the music. Yeah, don't quote me on that. I'm sure it's something like that. It may be one of the most famous pieces of music that he's ever used yeah. and made famous. Like, he really made that famous. It no, was absolutely. just unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. And that's such a cool fucking walk-up. I mean, it's so cool to introduce her. I mean, like I keep saying, he knows how to introduce characters. He knows how to introduce villains. Absolutely. No, you got that right. You got that right. Yeah, great. Great now, in this movie, we also get a signature long take. One of the first ones he's done, and that is when Oren has Jedi fucking suddenly abilities, and she senses a disturbance in the Force outside, and she throws that little dagger, and then sends yeah. Gogo out to find her, whoever it is, and the you know, bride, got the bride the hanging up in the, the rafters. Well, yeah. when she finally lowers herself down, and then she walks down to the bathroom, that's that long take. It took them six hours to block that scene. Six like that. Hours to block that scene. I bet it did, yeah. And I think it took him 17 takes. And I, I guess the, the, the camera operators were like literally in pain after because it was just how long of a scene it is. You know, I mean, it's a, it's an awesome scene. But then yeah. she walked by the six, seven, eight, and they're playing the that, again, another song that became very famous and was used over here in America for like Honda commercials or, or some kind of commercial. We've heard, you know, it's been used quite a few times over here as far as, you know, in our advertising. But I gotta say, your smash pick, Gogo is so hot. Like she is okay. she's as hot as she is deadly. You know, like she she really is. But the other weird juxtaposition of them it. walking in is the eighty eight, the crazy eighty eight, they look like some kind of weird K pop band, don't they? <laughs> a little bit just the way they're well in they retrospect, got the Kato, yeah, like the Kato mask and stuff like that. They have this really weird vibe going for them when they come walking with her, and then they're like talking about getting pepperoni pizzas and someone's dick getting big in Japanese, which we never get that in, in subtitles. We uh. we're left out of that whole Whatever it was, it's like it's kept like as an inside joke for the Japanese audience that we will never be a part of unless you know Japanese. And Tarantino films don't have subtitles that you can add either. Do you know that on Blu-ray? Okay, I'm sure you know. After all this starts, and unfortunately, your your poor girlfriend, your poor soon-to-be wife, she made the mistake of going to the bathroom to answer a phone call or powder her nose or as we learn a lot of times in Tarantino films using the bathroom can usually lead to someone's detriment in the movie she comes out of the bathroom and loses an arm mm. an arm oh in quite spectacular fashion spectacular well. fashion spectacular fashion and I love how they she just continues to swing around to get that blood effect going more and more I mean, you can, like there's no reason for her to spin but it it's actually fantastic. hits the, it actually hits the, the camera as well. Yeah, it's so yeah, so good. Amazing. Well, this leads us to the greatest fight, one of the greatest moments. Tarantino decided that he was going to do an action movie, and we get nothing but fucking action. Possibly, yeah, possibly one of the best action sequences ever. Film. Yeah, because because it's such a long action sequence from the moment she cuts off her arm until she finally gets to the end with Oren. It's uh, God, it feels like 20, 30 minutes. Like it's a long, long go. It took them six weeks to shoot the scene. It's a long time. The visual gags and ideas that spring out of that oh. twenty-five minutes is pretty amazing. Oh, really. it's unbelievable. Even unbelievable. if you even if you would have filmed 
50 action scenes before that in other films. That would still be amazing. So for that to be your sort of first foray into that is fucking gobsmacking. He's got her in the Bruce Lee Game of Death outfit unintentionally. If you, I don't know if you've noticed, but the bottom of her shoe that she wears when she walks across the glass, and it always slips by. It says, Every fuck single you. sensor, it says, fuck you, because you can't read it straight. It says, fuck yeah. you. Bruce Lee is always seen in his movies where it's him against, like, 9 to 20 guys, and then he's whooping their ass, whether it's with his nunchucks or his feet, and says, like, he's always whooping ass. So Tarantino obviously l- went with that. The, always the hero of the Kung Fu film is always suddenly surrounded by, like, 97 people, and he's got to go through them to get to, like, the boss. And yeah. I love how it starts slow though, because you know we get the <laughs> we get the K-pop band to come down, and she dispatches of them very very fast, very yeah. quickly, and then we get Go Go. We do, and I love it. So it sets us up with like, oh, we're gonna fight a few henchmen. Then we're gonna get boss level right before the boss levels. Like the second to last boss is Go Go Yabari, and yeah, her weapon to me that's that's one of my favorite weapons is is her weapon. It is just that's a great oh it's no no dice just Fantastic. brutal. And then yeah. the mono and, and, mono and, and, fight hey, we get. Yeah. The bride is in trouble. Well, yes. You know. The bride is in trouble. Again, like all great action films with heroes, you put the hero in just the amount of peril that they're, oh, they're about to. And then something fortuitous has happened where, oh, we see this moment and puts the table leg into her head. And a great shot. At first, we just hear it. Hear the whack. Yeah. And then we get to look at Gogo. And then the blood comes out of her eyes. And then we get the shot of the chain falling out of her hand and loosening. And then she falls over. It's well done. And yeah. then we're all like, all right, let's go, O-Rat. Now she's going to fight O-Rat. And then we got the old... Silly rabbit, tricks are for kids. The great the sound motorbikes. of the motorbikes just come, and you're like, holy shit, it's a lot of people. And then, as you said, Gordon Liu, his character, Johnny Moe, Johnny he Mo. comes in, and he's like, yeah, and they Screaming. come from everywhere. <laughs> they just come piling in, and you're like, it's almost like Tarantino said, I've seen these Bruce Lee kung fu films. I love the fact that you've got 20 guys. I think it's cute. How 60 to 70 feel? <laughs> and he's, I mean, say what you will. If, if you're not a fan of Tarantino or you think he's this or that, the man pushed himself in this film. He has never done action sequences until this point. And does he go in and work it in easily? No. He decides to do this one-on-three million fight that takes six weeks to shoot that is all done with swords. There's no gunplay. There's no, like, easy kills. It's everyone is going to get cut down by a sword. And how do we make it happen? We throw in break dancing moves and we've got song changes and the color goes black and white because the censors don't want the blood. Fucking God damn it. What a bunch of pussies over here in America. Every every kid should have a gun. Uh, every well, kid should have a gun. That, Everyone, but, but we can't show blood on TV. Like what? What is going on? So anyways, we have to do that for the censors, yeah, well. but we get this amazing fight of her. And I love the little beats of it starts out good. And then all of a sudden, you know, she put, like we said earlier, she puts the sword in one of the guys. She's spinning him around. And there's these moments for her to catch her breath and kind of reassess how she's going to finish this fight. It's amazing that she's even able to, one, defeat all of them, but then have any energy to then go out and fight fucking Oren Ishii. Like, Oren stacked the deck heavily in her favor to really take out, you know, to take the bride down a peg or two before she even got there. Do you think when Oren walked out, do you think that she thought that she was going to have to fight the bride? Do you think she set her minions to the slaughter? Do you think that it was she always knew it was going to be her and the bride at the end? That she just was like, well? No, I don't think she did. And I say that because she doesn't know that the bride got Hanzo sword. No, she doesn't because she asks Does she? St- steal. And then she says, oh, you lie. And then she spins it and shows the, the emblem to her when she's out in the... Yeah. Yeah. So I think, yeah, she's fucked. 
You got no chance. Did you know that there are over 450 gallons of fake blood used for Kill Bill? <laughs> I didn't. No, I did not know that. But that just, yeah. I mean, that whole sequence with, I love the, um, the moment where someone flicks the lights out. And yeah, it goes to the blue, yeah, blue that's and black. Really cool. And I must say, another another thing about that whole massacre <laughs> sequence is the change between being the bride and being Zoe Bell. You can't tell. No, Very, well, well photographed. Great job by both yeah, actresses. You, Amazing. Amazing work. Because it's Zoe Bell running up the banister, and then they have her turn her back to us to do the, the sword cut of the person coming across. They keep the magic hidden, which, but it's just, they, just beautiful. When that's just chaos all around, to be able to pull that off is yeah. fantastic in, its, in itself. So, so, yeah, that is, to me, one probably one of the best action sequences of all time. And that's including John Woo, Sam yeah. Peckinpah, Bruce Lee, fucking you name it. You know, it's just an amazing, yeah, it's fantastic. I love it. I love it. How did Johnny Moe die from getting his legs cut off and falling into a pool? Well, he like, drowned. Well, I think he's fucking, well, the fact that he's got his legs cut off is probably bad enough. So he's, he, he, he bleeds to death but and it feels he like drowns. He, it feels like his legs are cut off and he falls in and he lands in the water and he's dead. Again, I know this happens a lot in kung fu films. I get that. I know it's probably an homage, but it just felt like here's like the third. Well, he's probably not as badass as Go Go, but he's like the next. Like he's the gatekeeper to get to Oren at this point, and he just gets his legs taken off, and down he goes. So I don't I know think, that Johnny Mo would last long against Pai Mei if it's that easy for him to go down. Well, I don't know. I think if someone gets their legs cut off, falls thirty feet, you know, chances are they're going to drown. I don't think that's that much of a mirror. You know, that's that much of a surprise. <laughs> I think you're being a bit harsh on old Johnny Moe. Uh, I, I, look at, I'm just I'm bringing it to light. I think Johnny Moe's a bit of a pussy. I'm just saying, I think Johnny Moe, uh, we, we were led to believe he was such a badass. We were led to believe that he was a badass, and he uh, he didn't really shine. I'm just saying, he didn't shine in his moment. That's all I'm saying. Well, he lasted long enough, but then he did get I his guess fucking he did. legs cut. But anyway, let's, let's, let's move along. <laughs> Now, when we finally do get the bride versus Ren, it is easily one of the most beautiful fight scenes ever filmed. It's so beautiful. It is an homage to Lady. Yeah, it is okay. So it's a home homage to Lady Snowblood. It is a yep. beautifully shot scene. It's not the best fight, is it? No, no, no. I didn't say the best fight. I said the the no, most no, no. beautiful scene. No, no, no. I know you didn't. Scene. I know. No, no, I know you didn't. That's, I, I'm just. I, I just always think that when I watch it. I think it's after what we've just seen. You know. <laughs> She just fucking killed, like, like sad 60-odd people. Well, in fairness for the two of them, Oren is not exactly dressed to be sword fighting, oh, con- I just considering the- her kimono and the way she's dressed. Like, she's not exactly in the kind of gear you would want to be in a sword fight. No. Also, the bride has just gone through hell. Like, she is badly injured. Literally, yeah. And also... Yeah. So it makes me think that at the end of the... When she... This must take a month or two before she's able to fly back to America and fight... With Vernita because she needs some time to heal from this brutal onslaught yeah. that she just took on. Yeah, and um, and that fantastic um, version of um, "Don't Let Me Be Misunderstood," the oh, Spanish version, it. which, like you say, it's, it's a combination, is it, of mm-hmm. like of the music, the way the bride now looks with the yellow and red. Mm-hmm. You've got Oren looking like a just a beautiful porcelain doll. Porcelain doll. So the so the and the snow coming the down. Snow, it's just, it's, it's just oh, a, everything about oh, it. So everything it is, about it's amazing. It, 
It's an incredible scene. Now, I put this up a couple months back. I even put this video up. But when Oren says, you won't last five minutes, it is exactly four minutes and 59 seconds from the time she steps forward out of her shoes to the top of her head is sliced off. Well, that can't be an accident because no. that seems oh, like such absolutely a... Well, no, not an accident. No, because it just seems like such an odd thing to say. Yes, but think about two things. Tarantino thinking about what, how long he had to film certain things for that to happen that way, and then him and Sally sitting in the editing room making sure that it's crafted so that it lasts just shy of five minutes. Yeah. Yeah. No, you got that right. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it's a... And I do love the whole charge, the flashing swords, and then the next thing, you know, one gets injured. But yet, they have respect for each other, so instead of, you know, I mean, easily, Oren could have just gone over and finished off the bride while she's laying there, but that's not what she wanted. She almost, she no. wanted to, she wanted the satisfaction of killing her because, you know, she makes fun of silly Caucasian girl likes to play with samurai swords. And so she thought she was better. It's a very sort of, well, the whole sequence is, like we said, well, after what we've just seen action-wise, this is just like a very poetic sort of visually rich moment that is paying homage to like you say lady snowblood yeah which is a great film too yeah actually yes well there's, a, there's actually quite a few nods to lady snowblood and kill bill as we know musically as well yep plays the theme in it too so before we end this there are five fight scenes in this film which is your favorite the bride versus renita the bride versus gogo the bride versus the crazy 88 the bride versus oren or beatrix versus l which of these fight sequences is your favorite it's the crazy 88 the whole scene against the crazy Eight. good yeah, choice. yeah it's to me to me it's a difficult choice obviously the sophie's choice situation but the crazy 88 sequence is just because you've also got to think back to when you first saw it you know and i watched the matrix and all that and i thought that was bullshit i didn't think that was convincing <laughs> i didn't even find it particularly convincing to be fair you know a all good and well on them learning the choreography, but they didn't really sell it to me. I didn't feel like <laughs> there was any power to any of that fighting. Where in Kill Bill, I just remember watching that at the cinema, and that just absolutely blew my mind. And whenever I watched, you know, whenever I watch Kill Bill, I'm constantly wowed still that he pulled that off. So yes, for me, it is the uh, Crazy 88 fight. What about you? For me, I believe it is... I think it's her and Gogo. I think her and Gogo is the closest I actually felt that she was outmatched. Yeah, no, that's yeah. valid. That's yeah, a good point. Because Gogo got her sword away from her and her she weapon does get was... the better. She does get the better yeah. of her for a bit of yeah. that. No, that's a good point, actually. Yeah. So, there's great, some, and, yeah. so there's an element of danger to that. There yeah. is an element of like, oh dear, it's how it's going to yeah. go. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Whereas the crazy, yeah, you know, she's just everyone's getting their asses handed to her. So, yeah, good point. Now, the end of this film ends with Bill interrogating Sophie. I have no problem with that. I did recheck. We talked about it. I think we talked about it in, in, in the future study. episode. Yep, she does have just one arm taken up, but you no. are correct. They're in the movie, in the other, in the, what's it called? There is two, I guess to take it off, uh, there's another uh, scene for the whole bloody affair where both arms are removed. Yes. Oh, um, but in this one, there's only one. No, in this route, there is only and one I checked. Too. What I don't like about this, because it had to be split, I do not like the big reveal cliffhanger. Because I remember reading the screenplay, I remember vividly being like, oh shit, her daughter is still alive when she finds out, because we are the bride throughout the entire movie. We find out things when she finds out things, and when she came around the corner at Bill's house at the end of volume two, and there is her daughter, Bibi, 
You had no clue it was coming. They had to obviously, I had this part in when they split the movie, so there's a cliffhanger. I still wish they had left that part out. I wish it had just ended with him interrogating her and her telling her what, you know, and so they will soon all be as dead as Oren. And then I wish they just, they do that cut, and then they have that little, we have Hattori Hanzo, and she's making the death list, and we finally see that. And he's talking about, you know, don't get lost while you're on your thing of revenge. And it could have just cut from there and gone to the next movie. I could have done without, does she know that her daughter's alive? Like, I did not like that. I still don't like it. It bothers me every time I see it. I remember how I felt when I read it in the original screenplay and how much... I was like, oh, shit, no way. And okay, doesn't have I the same that. power when you see the daughter. You know, I know, I, I, you know, you know, you might forget about it. And eventually she's, you know, she doesn't come from the, like another two hours. But at the same time, that sudden like, oh, shit, like reveal. Because, you know, the whole time we're like, oh, man, you know, we're in with a kill. And then all of a sudden, like, we, we should feel like she is like, oh, shit, like now what? I don't know. That's just my personal opinion. Yeah. How do you feel? I get that. But I would counter that with when I saw it. Right. Firstly, I saw the script online before I saw the film. I didn't read it, though, because I didn't want the film spoiled for me. So I read about a page and thought, hang on a minute. I'm going to go see this movie. I don't want to know. Well, I was going to Iraq, so I, I, I cheated. I'm not going to lie. Well, I no, cheated. no. I mean, I'm sure many, many people read the script the first chance they got. But I, I just thought, no, I don't want it ruined for me. So that that's not an issue for me, is all I'm really saying. And I did gotcha. kind of like the fact, and I did kind of like the fact that you don't get cliffhangers in movies. True. I mean, I see what you're saying, but it is cool that reveal. Yeah. So it's kind of like I was kind of like, wow, that's not something you get very often. Because I, I hadn't, I hadn't even thought that far. Because I was so probably wowed by what I was seeing unfold on the screen. But when it came to the does she know her daughter's still alive, I was like, whoa, you know, fuck. I hadn't even considered that. But I see what you're saying about how much of an impact. And much more of an impact it would have had in Volume Two. I get that. Yeah. If you didn't know all the way along that she was still alive, so I can kind of see both sides. That's what I'm saying. But for me personally, I kind of dug that the movie ended with a cliffhanger because that was just something you didn't get very often. Even when there were films, there were films that had sequels already greenlit before Kill Bill One and Two, obviously. Yeah. But you didn't always get that kind of gut punch cliffhanger. So that was kind of cool. So, yeah, I see both sides. I definitely see what you're saying. But if you'd have gone through, you know, ultimately nearly four and a half hours and then you get hit <laughs> with and then you get hit with that little nugget of info, yeah. I was like, that would have blown your mind. I get that too. So, yeah, that's one of those things. Just different scenarios that we came to the film with. Really. Let's ask our guest some fucking questions. What was your favorite song on the Volume 1 soundtrack? Absolutely an easy, easy one for me. In the House of Blue Leaves sequence, uh, Death Rides a Horse. The theme from Death Rides a Horse by Annie Morricone, which is playing when she yells out for Oren initially. Oren is she? Yes. It's kind of got almost an Asian vibe to it. Although yeah. it's going to spaghetti I, You agree. I agree. Yeah, it works. But I tell you what, that sequence, right, when that music starts, fades it, fades it in. And you hear a yell, I run easy. My fuck, I get goosebumps. My hairs, the hairs of my arms stand up every time. <laughs> so that is definitely my favorite. That is definitely my favorite piece of music from Kill Bill Volume One. Who was your favorite character from Kill Bill Volume One? Hattori Hanzo. Yeah, he's a good. good he just brings. He yeah. just brings something to that film that I don't think the film would have been as good. The fact that that's Sonny Cheever. Yeah. That oh, just yeah. bring, you know, that just. Gives it a certain um, legitimacy, just yep. a certain something. 
Hundred percent. So agree with yeah, you. yeah. So yeah, definitely my favorite character being a Tory hands on. What was your favorite line or monologue from the film? We've said it already, and it is on your journey. If you should encounter God, God will be cut. <laughs> That's so good. I should get that tattoo. Said by the man. Said by the man himself. himself. Yes. And lastly, what was your favorite scene from Kill Bill Volume One? Again, we've already said it. We've already spoke about it at length. Just the whole forty minutes at the House of Blue Leaves. Well, really, okay, yeah, it's got a bit. But then it's 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 almost the same problem I had with Reservoir Dogs when you said, "What well, your favorite scene?" And it turned out to be like fucking eighteen minutes long. <laughs> literally, literally, the minute that plane is coming in and you get the Green Hornet theme. Until the fucking cliffhanger ending, I'm just absolutely engrossed. But I will cut it down for when you say your favourite scene. <laughs> I will cut it down from 45 minutes, and I will just say, literally, when Johnny Moe comes running in the room screaming to to just before, I guess, just before she goes outside to fight Oren, just that House of Blue Leaves sequence is just heaven. Pure cinema, in my opinion. And that's a wrap on Volume 1 of our seventh episode. I would once again like to thank my special guest, Steve Smith, host of the Way Past Cool Podcast, for joining me today. I had a fucking blast discussing our love of QT, as well as taking a blood-soaked look at Tarantino's first foray into the action genre with Kill Bill Volume 1. Now you can find the link to Steve's podcast and the podcast socials in the show notes. And as always, you can become a member of the Church of Tarantino by following us on all our socials. Those links can be found in the show notes as well. Now be sure to join me again next week as Mr. Smith rejoins me for the first of two Bible studies this month. We get things started by dissecting and discussing the Bride vs. Vanita Green fight scene from Kill Bill Volume 1. So until next time, I'm the Reverend Scott K. May Tarantino be with you always. This has been a man with an exceptional beard production.